Every time that we hear the Word of God preached, it's a word that is either in season or out of season. There are times when the Word of God addresses a situation that we are currently going through, and therefore it is a word in season. And then there are other times it's out of season, like a man who would go and chop wood for his fireplace in the middle of summer so that the wood can dry in the heat and be ready for winter. The preached word might be something that you hear today but store away for later use. This idea of words being in season and out of season finds its origin in Paul's final words to Timothy, where he admonishes Timothy, the young evangelist, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Words out of season are necessary because Paul understood and he warned that there was going to be a time that was coming when people would not endure sound doctrine. They would turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul understood that there would be these times when some people would readily receive the word, the word would be in season for them, and they are ready to receive it, and other times when the preached word would be out of season. There'd be a time when it's in season, when people are growing and listening, and then a time when people no longer wish to hear the word. But while seasons change, God's word is constant. It never changes. Today, in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, we're going to see a narrative where God calls Samuel to be a prophet, his prophet. However, the word to Samuel is a word that is out of season. It is a dark time. It's a time when there were no prophetic words being spoken. It was a time when God was not regularly speaking to his people. And though it was an out-of-season time, the word of God nevertheless came just in time. God called Samuel to be a prophet. And he gives him his very first prophecy a word that is out of season, in a, in a sense, to Eli the priest, but in due season, in the perfect season, for the nation that was in darkness. I'm going to open by reading the first three verses of chapter 3. If you would read along with me in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the first three verses. 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. So just to catch you up, last time we were in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, Uh, And I was describing this volley, if you remember, this volley back and forth uh, between Samuel, the godly seed, and Hophni and Phinehas, the reprobate sons of Eli. And we're going to see this pattern of volleying back and forth throughout the book of, of Samuel, this struggle that happens between light and darkness as we wait for the sun to rise on the kingdom of Israel. If you go back into chapter 2, you remember that right after that beautiful story of Samuel's birth and the song that uh, Hannah sings, there was a series of paragraphs that each began with the Hebrew letter Vav, which is translated now. And then there was a volley. So in verse 12, right after the height of Hannah's song, there's a volley, and we hear all of a sudden about Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli who did not know the Lord. Then there's verse 18, it volleys back, another volve, back to Samuel. Then in verse 22, back to the immoral acts of Hophni and Phinehas, right under God's nose in the tabernacle, right where the ark of God was. And then the chapter ends with this unknown man of God, and he speaks this prophecy to Eli. If you look back uh, with me, chapter 2 at verse 27, this man of God begins by reminding Eli of the priestly lineage, how God called this lineage, going all the way back to to his forefather, Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest. 
Look at 1 Samuel 2.27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? So that's a reference to God's first calling of Eli's line through the first priest, Aaron. Then in verse 29, Eli is indicted for the sins of the priests of his time, as well as his own sons, verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? If you remember, it was the practice of the priests of the time in Shiloh in violation to God's word to take the best portions of the sacrifice and use it for themselves. They were both stealing from the worshiper as well as robbing God of what was due him. So the man of God then announces the judgment that's going to come. Verse 30 says, Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, here's another volley, but now the Lord declares, I made this promise, but now far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Notice there, those who honor me, those who despise me. There's no middle ground. You either honor God with obedience or you despise him. Eli Hophni and Phinehas and the priests at Shiloh were going around doing the, uh, the business outwardly of God, but they despised God because they were disobedient in their worship practices. So in verse 31, the judgment comes. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then skip down to verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. That's the judgment. And we're going to come back to this next week, actually, when we're going to look at just chapter 4 next week. Uh, but as God so often does in Scripture, He announces this judgment right alongside of it with the blessing. Right alongside judgment comes salvation. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before me, uh, before my anointed forever. And again, we're going to look at this next week. But I'll just say for now that this prophecy, like many of the prophecies in, in the Old Testament, is fulfilled in, in shadows and in types. And it's fulfilled in stages. Uh, this prophecy of the faithful priest that was coming would be immediately fulfilled with the death of Eli and Samuel becoming the judge of Israel. Then later in history, it's going to be fulfilled under King Solomon. We'll look at this next week when uh, Solomon banishes the e Eli's priestly line. And then, of course, it's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the faithful priest who does all that his father's heart and mind desires. So that was uh, just to bring you up, this volleying back and forth. We come to chapter 3, and there's another volve. So it tells us that the, at least the beginning of chapter 3 really is linked back to chapter 2. There's another volve, another volley. And this volley leads us back into the light. Verse 1. Now, the boy Samuel, the hero arises, the, the name of the one who the book is named after, the boy Samuel. Chapter 3 is all about how the boy Samuel becomes the prophet Samuel. The opening narration in verses 1 and 2 set the stage for this activity of, that is taking place at a time of decreased light. Again, verse 1, there's no frequent vision. Uh, verse 2, Eli is not able to see. Now you say, well, that, that's Eli, but what happens often in 1 Samuel, we're going to see this as we go along, that the physical characteristics of the characters actually reflect upon the condition of the nation as a whole. So if you look in verse 2, it says Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. Now that's his physical condition. 
but it's also his spiritual condition, not only of Eli himself, but the entire nation of Israel during this dark period in their history. Their eyesight is growing dim so that they could not see. They were under judgment. When God judges a people, it's often manifested by his silence. He withdraws the prophetic voice. He leaves people in the book of, as the book of Amos says, to stagger as a result of a famine for the word of God. When God turned Israel over to the greed in excess in, in, during the time of Amos, he sent a famine for the word. What is a famine? Meaning there was no word of the Lord. Apostasy is often accompanied or, or prefaced by a famine of the word. The silence of God is a two-way street. God's word becomes rare when first his people no longer wish to hear his word. They have no ears to hear. They're comfortable in their sin and they're unwilling to repent. And it is then that God turns them over to their choice of blindness. The church in our day is afflicted with this condition, this same condition. And we brothers and sisters, are in desperate need of a revival of the Word of God, particularly in the West. The Christianity that is popular in our culture bears little resemblance to biblical faith. People's itching ears are leading them to turn aside to myths in our day. God's Word is becoming more and more notably absent, and God is becoming silent. We don't know our future, but the good news in the day of Samuel is that God was about to break his silence. In verse 3, it gives us the glimmer of hope. Look at verse 3. It says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Why? And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Yes, Eli's sight is growing dim. Yes, Hophni and Phinehas are doing wicked deeds right, under, right in the very presence of the ark of God, right where God was, under God's nose. But there was a boy, at this time probably about 12 years old, also dwelling in that same tent. And he is on the rise, and the older order is growing dim. This was a season in Israel where the word of the Lord was rare, but yet God is about to speak when he chooses. Just like we saw in chapter 2. The word of the Lord was rare, but he sent that prophet. Now in chapter 3, he is going to call Samuel as a prophet. This is what the nation desperately needed in its time. The light of a prophet in the midst of their darkness. So... One evening at night, in the dark of night, perhaps under the glow of, in, in the tabernacle, the glow of the lit menorah in the holy place, three times God calls a boy. And three times Samuel hears the voice. And three times he fails to discern its origin. Look at this in verses 4 to 8. Take note of the repetition of the word called here. That's plainly the main theme of the entire chapter. This is the, the calling of Samuel. Verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went to lay down again, and the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and he went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Three times in this narrative. I want you to notice something about each of the, of the people in this narrative. Samuel, Eli, and God. First, Samuel. Samuel had not yet experienced hearing the voice of Yahweh. It was a time when the hearing of God's word was rare, remember. He was thoroughly unfamiliar with the idea that God even had a voice. And make no mistake, this is an audible voice. How do we know that? Because he goes to Eli 
And he says, I heard something. I heard something with my natural ears. So what does he assume? You hear something with your natural ears. You assume the most natural thing, Eli, who was the other person there in the tent with him, was calling him. He had no idea that God would speak this way. Secondly, Eli. Here's the seasoned veteran, okay, the serving as a priest for years. He doesn't realize this voice. He doesn't, not only doesn't he hear the voice, but he doesn't even realize it. We can give him a pass maybe for the first time. But after three times, Eli is so unfamiliar with the idea of God speaking that he basically just says, Samuel, go back to sleep. And the third person, God, spend a little time on thinking about this call. What do we observe about God's call? Well, the first thing is that God does not give up. His calling is irrevocable and effectual. Even if it was missed a dozen times or a hundred times, God's word never returns void. It always accomplishes his will. Isaiah 55, verse 11 says, So shall my word be that goes from my mouth. God is saying this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word, his call, is effectual, effective. It accomplishes that which he sets it forth for. When the Lord called Samuel a fourth time then, Samuel is prepared as he's given an answer by Eli the priest. Look at verses 8 through 11. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went to lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. God's call is effectual. It accomplishes his purpose. He is always heard by his sheep. Jesus confidently affirms in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Turn to John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus talks about this effectual call. And in the context of John chapter 6, those who are listening to Jesus are not believing in him. He's done many miracles, but they don't believe in him. They're spiritually blind, and they're grumbling. Because Jesus, in verse 41, this is the great bread of life discourse. Jesus is talking about um, how he's the bread that came down from heaven, and they're grumbling. Look at verse 43, Jesus says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what does he highlight there? He, he highlights the inability of a person, anyone, because no one can come, no one is able to come. So there's the inability to come to the Father and also the efficacy of the call of God. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father. Uh, look up at verses 36 and 37 of the same chapter. Again, Jesus' words. But I say to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now notice that Jesus does not say, whoever will come to me, the Father will give me. That's Arminianism. If you come to God, then he makes a decision to then choose you, give, give you to his son. You believe, and then he gives you to his son. That's Arminian theology. You make the decision, then God responds by saving you. That is a doctrine of human invention. The text clearly says, whoever the Father gives me will come to me. It is God's calling that is the result of sinners coming to Jesus. 
Unless he calls, unless he draws the sinner, there is no possibility of a sinner coming to him. As Jesus yet again says in verse 65 of John 6, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. See, man does not cooperate with God in his call. He, man is at best like Samuel in this story. He's lying down asleep, oblivious to the voice of God, spiritually deaf to what's going on. But this is no barrier for God. This is no barrier for a God who raises the dead. And like Jesus' powerful words in John 11, Lazarus, come forth. Raise Lazarus from the dead, so God's calling is powerful. It will not fail in its purpose. God's call is effectual. And if you'd like to study more of this, I... We've done it under other, other contexts. I don't have time to get into it today. But I have a number of verses. Uh, if you'd like to look them up, you can jot them down. The second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 31. Galatians 1, verses 5, uh, 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Colossians 3, 15. 1 Timothy 6, 12. And then the, in the epistle of Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 15, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, and verse 21, 1 Peter 5, verse 10, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 and verse 10. But I want to consider one example with you. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 28 to 30, or you can just listen if you like. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Here's what I want to focus on now. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. There is this unbreakable chain in Paul's mind. There is the foreknowledge and predestination of God. He then calls the person. He then justifies the one who he calls, and then he glorifies the one he justifies. And only if the call is effectual, can Paul write with such certainty that everyone who is called will be justified, and everyone who is justified is glorified. Everyone. And he puts it in the past tense. It's not even will be. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now, I need to say this because sometimes you hear this teaching and, and, and some, some might misunderstand it. The effectual call does not replace the gospel call. People say, well, you guys, you, you believe that you don't have to evangelize people. You think that God just saves them in eternity and they're going to be saved. There is a distinction between the gospel call and the effectual call of God's elect. But when God effectually calls his elect, he always does so through the gospel call. No one is saved merely because they were elected in eternity. No one is saved apart from a response of repentance and faith in the gospel call. So God uses the gospel call to effectually call his sheep. It is only when the word of the gospel is spoken that God works to call his elect, to call his sheep, who then repent and believe in his Son by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But God's call never fails in its intent. We could preach the gospel and it might fall on deaf ears. But God's call never fails in its intent. God is undefeated. His call is effectual. The second thing about God's call here that I noticed is that he is patient. Here we are, this critical moment in Israel's history the nation is in darkness. They're governed by corrupt leaders. They were without a prophet for centuries. 
And now God is going to elect this prophet. And he's not even hearing his voice. God does not panic. God does not change his means. He is in no hurry. He knows his sheep can be dense animals. <laughs> so he's persistent in his calling. He doesn't even berate Samuel for being so dense and not hearing his voice. Look, uh, Matthew Henry writes this on this uh, verse. He says, The call which divine grace designs to make effectual shall be repeated until it is so, till we come to that call. Brothers and sisters, we can take encouragement. If you're sharing the gospel with someone, a family member, a loved one, or a friend, or coworker, and they seem so resistant to, to it, they seem so deaf to the call, don't give up. Don't just assume, well, they're so closed. And definitely don't change your means. Keep sharing the word of God. Be faithful to share the word of God, because that's the only means that the sinner is going to be saved by. We are saved, we are born again by the word of God. And you never know when that word is going to ignite. So be patient. I also see an application here for parents. Parents, you can learn something from God's example of patience in this text. There are some in the evangelical world, there's a, a child-rearing teaching uh, that's referred to as immediate obedience. And this teaching is prevalent in certain evangelical contexts. And the idea is that parents have to break the will of their child, requiring them to snap to attention, to obey instantaneously. You, you give it a command, you obey. And if you delay obedience, it's actually considered disobedience, according to this teaching. Now, I find this teaching rooted in parents' self-interest and selfishness and pride and boasting rather than in Scripture. Ironically, it often results in parents violating the command of Scripture that they not exasperate their children. But sadly, parents who are more concerned with the way they look or their own comfort or their own image, when they demand not obedience, we ought to demand obedience. But when they demand obedience, not obedience, but immediate obedience, you are adding to the scripture. And if you add to the scripture, that is, by definition, legalism. It is also idolatry. And if the graven image of, that you have created in the idol factory of your mind makes God to look more like that gruff, efficient, boot camp sergeant, than the patient, long-suffering father, then you need to repent, because that's idolatry. Dads, many parents, in particular fathers, fall into this kind of thinking. And that's why God specifically commands fathers twice in the New Testament. Colossians 3.21 and Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Are you guilty of exasperating your children because you're following an idol? Some ministry told you that God is like this? Learn from 1 Samuel 3, God's example. He is patient. He's patient. He faithfully and patiently calls Samuel until he obeys. God is not willing that Samuel should perish, but that he should come to the light of truth. 2 Peter 3.9 tells believers, Beloved, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. How patient was He with you? He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God is patient with His elect. And all those He calls he justifies, and all those he justifies, he glorifies. None are lost, no matter how dense. Second point. I'm going to be more brief on the second and third points. Second point, I'm going to draw from verses 11 to 18, that God gives gifts to those he calls. God gifts, God's gifts for service. God gives gifts to the ones he calls. And in this ver these verses, we're going to see how God gives Samuel a prophecy right after he calls him. Look at verse 11, 
first Samuel back in first Samuel three. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Hard word of judgment. He's going to punish his house forever, and there's no atonement that could be made, no offering, no sacrifice that, he could, be made, that could be made. Same thing the prophet said in chapter 2. And we're going to revisit these prophecies and their fulfillment in chapter 4 next week. But for today, let's consider here how God equips Samuel for ministry. There's an adage uh, that goes, uh, God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Uh, Calling unqualified individuals is what God does. And we could go back to all the heroes of our faith, Joseph, Moses, Miriam, uh, Deborah, Ruth, David, Jonah, Amos, Peter, unqualified people. And no better illustrated than the boy Samuel. Not only does he have no experience as a prophet, he's never heard God's voice. He fails to recognize God's voice when he first hears it. And he has to rely on the advice of a near apostate to finally know that it was God speaking. Yet God calls this inexperienced boy to be his prophet. Not only that, but Samuel becomes the first in a a line of prophets. Samuel began a new season in Israel. The light was coming back to Israel. They were in darkness, and Samuel would be the first of a line of prophets. God would now start to begin to regularly speak to the nation through prophets. Until when? Until that final prophet, like Moses, comes, even the Lord Jesus Christ. God equips Samuel right off the bat. He gives him what will be the first of many prophecies. And here is Samuel, the young boy, and his very first prophecy is against his mentor, Eli. And he's reticent. Look at verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. He just got that prophecy, right? Samuel lay until morning. And he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Two things I noticed here, by way of application for us as well. First, see how God gave Samuel the prophecy, but it's up to Samuel to speak that prophecy? In in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking of the gifts of prophecy, it says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, meaning that if God gives a gift of prophecy to his people, it is up to them to speak it at the appropriate time. Because in the church at Corinth, there was all this disorder among all these prophets, both true and false, and they were speaking out of turn, and it was resulting in disorder in the assembly, and they failed to understand that Yeah, if God gave you a word, you can hold on to that word until the appropriate time. Respect the decorum, respect the order of the gathering, and speak when you're called upon. In our text, God gives Samuel this prophecy, but he does not immediately relay it to Eli. The second thing here that I noticed is that Samuel just gets this new gift, and he doesn't go through a cage stage. He's humble. Teach us, Lord, humility, right? We just sang that. Teach us, Lord, humility through Samuel. Samuel feared to tell the prophecy to Eli because he respected Eli's position, authority, and maturity. So he waits until Eli comes and asks him to share the prophecy. Look at verse 16. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. 
May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And then in verse 18, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. So it's Eli's prompting Samuel then respectfully as a child approaches his elder. Remember, he's about 12 years old. As a child approaches his elder, he tells Eli everything that God had spoken to him, namely that God is about to punish his house forever uh, because of the iniquity, because of his son's blasphemy, and that Eli's house, the iniquity of Eli's house, there would be no atonement, no sacrifice, no offering forever. Very hard word. You can understand why Samuel was afraid to share it. Now, some of that may have been a carnal fear of man, but certainly some of it was a good fear of deference to his elder. Let Samuel be an example to anyone who was called to preach God's word in any context, whether it be in church or in, in classes, in Bible studies, in evangelism, wherever you're called to share God's word. Let it be an example. The true prophet of God does not relish preaching judgment. Yes, he must preach judgment, but he does it with fear and trembling. The true prophet knows that God's word can be difficult to hear. It's heart-rending, especially when it's a hard word. It's heart-rending. Speaking to a sinner who's headed for eternal judgment, in hell, is never something the true prophet enjoys doing. So beware. Beware of those who just seem to love to preach judgment all the time. And again, it's true. The prophet must speak all of God's truth, hold back nothing. But he does so with fear and trembling. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis observes this on the text. He says, there is always this tension in the word of God. And any authentic messenger of that word knows and lives in it. If a preacher, for example, never places you under the criticism of God's word, never tells you your sin, but only smothers you with comfort, you must wonder if he's a phony. If the preacher contains only the judgment note and seldom offers comfort and encouragement, one must ask if he actually cares for God's people. If one has a high regard both for the truth of God, even if it's judgment, and for the troubles of the church, he will retain the proper tension in the biblical word. He will do both, and here's his words, he will do both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Just as Brother Lewis read us that quote from, from Spurgeon earlier, Afflict the comfortable and comfort. That's what preaching is meant to do, both. Afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted. So I ask you today, what do you need? And are you willing to hear what you really need? In 1 Samuel, it's a clear case of afflicting the comfortable. Eli is comfortable. Now, it, the, script, the, the scripture tells us he's fat physically, but it's not really to bring out the point of his weight. It's just an outward sign of him being spiritually fat. He's comfortable. He has a cushy job. He's near the end of his career. He's comfortable in this cushy, cushy job, and this prophecy comes and afflicts him, or it ought to afflict him. And likewise, brethren, anytime we preach the gospel, it's impossible to avoid the offense of the cross. It's going to afflict there are other Gospels that offer less offensive ways of salvation. But when Christ is proclaimed, when the cross is proclaimed, there will be the accompanied revelation of our own sinfulness. We will be afflicted in the comfort of our sins. The cross confronts us with the depth of our wickedness and our need of the grace of God. Preaching Christ means preaching a cross. And it is, at the same time, the hardest message to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and the most beautiful message to those who are being saved by it. If you're in Christ today, praise God that that word afflicted you at one time. 
Praise God. If you're in Christ today, you're so thankful and grateful that the gospel afflicted you in your comfort. Well, you were comfortably going about your sin. The gospel came and afflicted you. Now that same truth comforts us. But if you are apart from Christ today, the gospel, that is the death of Christ in the place of sinners, must first afflict you. It must convict you. It must show you your personal offense against God before it comforts you. Now let's move on and consider Eli's response to Samuel's prophecy. Now before we read it, I want you to just think. What, what, what kind of response would you expect from someone hearing, your children are going to die, your lineage is going to be wiped out, and there's no way to atone for your sin? Maybe, like, maybe you'd expect Eli, like Moses, for example, would plead with God, would start to intercede for his people. Maybe he'd be like Jacob, put on sackcloth and ashes. Maybe he would tear his clothes like Joshua and Caleb did when the people wanted to go back to Egypt. Or like David when the death of his son Absalom, as wicked as Absalom was, David was devastated and mourned and wept at the death of his son. Is Eli going to react the same way after learning about his son's impending death? Is he going to wail and cry like Mordecai or Hezekiah or even wicked King Ahab who mourned and wept when the prophet Elijah announced judgment on him and his house? What is Eli's response to this horrific prophecy against not only him but his posterity? Verse 18, and he said, and in the original it's meh, It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Passive resignation. Eli, your children are going to die on the same day. Your lineage that's existed for hundreds of years, all of this tradition is going to be wiped out. And Eli's, whatever. This, to me, demonstrates the spiritual lethargy Eli, could, he's reached the point of his life where he could care less. Just like any word that comes by, by prophets in the scripture, it's a warning. And, and many times the prophets would come with, with words and the people could repent. Moses, Jacob, Joshua, Caleb, David, Mordecai, even Ahab had a greater response than his lukewarm Lord's will, okay. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to be warned by Eli's example here. I know I was. If you've been in the faith for many years, if you've been a Christian for many years, maybe things didn't work out for you like you hoped for when you were first saved, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and you got saved and got the whole world ahead of you. Maybe your children disappointed you. Maybe your calling or your ministry turned out differently than you expected. Maybe some loved one died apart from Christ who you thought was going to be saved. Maybe you compromised the faith in some area of your life. and You look back and you're disappointed. Let's learn from Eli here not to let disappointments and the evil of this dark age around us, let, let it not discourage you, let it not disenchant you, let, it, let, it not, let you not be disillusioned or disheartened. Don't give up the fight. Fight the good fight to the end. And if you're ever faced with a hard word that challenges you to do something uncomfortable, like repent, repentance is uncomfortable. But when you're challenged to repent, soften your heart and not your choice, lest you become like Eli and at the end of your life, hard-hearted as a result of soft choices. Later on in the book of Samuel, we're going to see another leader who sinned grievously, grievously. 
And he's confronted by another prophet. Nathan confronts King David. And David's response was very different, right? He repented. He fasted and wept until the day his child was lost. He composed Psalm 32, Psalm 51, demonstrating the fruit of repentance. What will your response be to a hard word? When the Holy Spirit comes and puts his finger on your sin, will it be Eli's indifference or David's repentance? The difference is life and death. Finally, in our text's final four verses, Samuel's office and gifting are confirmed by the people of God. So the third point, God's gifts are recognized by God's people. Look at verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel, verse 19. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. God was with Samuel, not just the boy Samuel, but through his life. God was faithful to him. Every word that he spoke, God upheld him. And we're going to see many as we study 1 Samuel, as we see the life of Samuel as he gets older. By extension, any words that we say, any ministry in our day is only as powerful as much as the Lord is with us. Scripture tells us, right, if God is with us, who can be against us? Right? So it's only as powerful as much as the Lord is with them. And your words will not fall to the ground only as much as the Lord is with you. The Lord sustains the ones that he calls and gifts. Over time, verse 20 reports that the people of God outwardly confirm Samuel's calling. Look at verse 20. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, top to bottom, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. The people of God recognized the gift that God had given to Samuel. This illustrates a biblical principle that part of the call of God includes the recognition of his people. See, a man can believe himself to be called to ministry, called to preach, but if there is no church to recognize that calling, as much as he thinks himself to be called, he is not called. Yes, a calling comes from God to the heart of an individual, but a true calling will always be recognized by God's people. There is a spiritual instinct that God gives to his people that recognize a calling. Finally, Rush getting through this quickly, verse 21, God blesses his people with his word, verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And we really have to go into the beginning of uh, chapter 4, verse 1, to get, conclude the section. So I'm going to read it again, 21, and then go right into uh, verse 1. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So Samuel's ministry of the word would end up coming to all Israel and therefore overshadowing and reversing all of the wickedness of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, all that they sowed, all of the darkness that they sowed for a generation now was coming to an end. Samuel's ministry would deliver the nation out of darkness and into light. Under Samuel's ministry as prophet, priest, and judge of Israel, the sun would begin to rise on God's kingdom. And by way of application to every generation, any effective ministry is only truly successful as much as it calls and equips disciples by the word of God. I mentioned earlier that the need of the church, especially in the West. If the sun is going to rise on us, brothers and sisters, the sun is going to rise on the church in our day, it is only going to come as a result of revival of preaching of God's word. It is only as the, church, as, as the word comes 
to the church like a spring rain after the uh, a winter drought that we will be revived. And brethren, we need this. We need this corporately. We need this personally. While there are all these evangelical leaders all over the world staggering around on social media, playing their games, playing their, their politics, God's people are starving for his word. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would raise up prophets in our day to preach the word. Pray that God's people would return to the word of God. Again, a warning here for those of us who've been in the faith for so long, read the scripture many times. Did it stop becoming effective to you? Pray that God's people would return to the word of God. We need the word of God to wash over our souls afresh, not just on Sunday, but every day. Don't grow complacent. Don't neglect the scripture. Pray for those things, brethren. Uh, after our service today, uh, we're going to be praying downstairs, and you're all certainly invited to join us in prayer I'm going to just use the time to pray for God to revive his church all over the world. We could pray for nations. We could pray for individual countries. We could pray for governments. But the main thing is that in these nations, the word of God would come. Those nations which never had the word of God and are in darkness, would, would get would, that word would come through, through salvation in their midst, through prophets, through missionaries. And then those of us who've had the word for centuries... And, and it, it's just become so stagnant that God would revive his word in our dark land. That's right, that's after, right after the service, if you'd like to join us, it's going to be downstairs. Now, finally, next week, we're going to move to a new scene. Act one of the book of Samuel has concluded here, and the new scene now is going to have Samuel fading into the background. Temporarily, he's going to come back, but this new scene... It, incorporates chapters 4 through 7. The main character that's going to come to the forefront is not a person, but it's the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And that scene spans, just giving you a little uh, teaser trailer here, uh, that scene spans chapters 4 through 7. So what I'd like you to do this week is read the entire section. Read chapters 4 all the way to chapter 7, and then go back and read just chapter 4 and chapter 7. And see if you notice some of the uh, parallels there between chapter 4 and chapter 7. This will all prepare you for what's coming up, not only next week, but, but the following sermon. Um, I believe chapters 4 through 7 is, is what's called a, a, a chiasm or a chiasm. Uh, that which is opened up in chapter 4 with the loss of the ark uh, to the Philistines is restored in chapter 7 as the ark comes back. So next week, what my plan is to look at chapter 4, we're going to see the fall, we're going to focus on the fall of the house of Eli. But the main theme in these chapters is the ark of the covenant. And we'll do chapter 4, and then God willing, the next time, examine the remaining chapters 5, 6, and 7.